Hello and welcome back to Pod 45, the podcast companion to Post 45 Contemporaries. I'm your host, Contemporaries co-editor, Michael Doherty. Here on Pod 45, we reflect on and respond to the curated clusters of essays on contemporary culture that we publish at post45.org slash contemporaries, taking the conversation further through lively and informal discussion and inviting you to join us. You don't have to have read the cluster we're discussing before you listen. We hope each episode can be as much a way into the cluster as a supplement to it. However you're listening, we're very glad that you are. Before we dive into today's discussion, this episode is coming out at a time when there's some uncertainty about the ongoing viability of Twitter as a platform. Regular listeners to the pod and readers of Contemporaries will be aware that Twitter is a major part of how we publicize our clusters. And we're hopeful that we can continue to do that on Twitter, but we're also taking steps to ensure that whatever happens, we can still let you know about all the great work that we publish on the site. We'll be mirroring our Twitter feed over on Mastodon, but we're also setting up a newsletter that will carry information about Contemporaries as well as the peer-reviewed side of Post45. To ensure that you can stay informed about what we're up to, please do sign up for that newsletter. There's a link to do so on our website, post45.org. Scroll down to the foot of the page and you will see the words newsletter sign up. You only have to give your email address, no other details, and we guarantee no spam. Just digests a few times a year of what we've been publishing so that your access to the latest and greatest in contemporary cultural criticism isn't contingent on the whims of a billionaire's midlife crisis. Please do encourage friends and colleagues to sign up too, especially those perhaps who've never been on Twitter, as we'd like to do more to bring our clusters and indeed this podcast to folks who have managed to escape the clutches of the Bird app. So, on to today's discussion, which takes us to a cluster we published last month, Gestures of Refusal, edited by Yan Bing Er and Sarah Bernstein. My contemporary's co-editor Francisco Robles sat down with Yanbing and Sarah, as well as cluster contributor Akugo Emijulu and the literary scholar Zain Yao, who doesn't appear in the cluster but whose work is in part invested in similar ideas, and who, I think you'll find, brought some invaluable further insights to this discussion of its themes. So let's now join Francisco, Yanbing, Sarah, Akugo, and Zain. My name is Francisco Robles. I'm one of the co-editors of Post 45 Contemporaries, along with Michael Doherty and our uh, editor-in-chief, Gloria Fisk. Right now, I'm in South Bend, Indiana, and I'm a member of the English department at the University of Notre Dame. So my name is Yen Bing Er. I'm one of the co-editors um, alongside Sarah Bernstein of a a post-45 contemporaries cluster called Gestures of Refusal. And I'm currently in Singapore. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of English, Linguistics and Theatre Studies at the National University of Singapore. Hi, my name is Sarah Bernstein. And with Yan Bing Er, I am the co-editor of this cluster on Gestures of Refusal. I'm a lecturer in English and Creative Writing at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. And I'm speaking to you from Coigach in the Scottish Highlands, where I live. Hi, so I'm Dr. Zain Yao, and I'm lecturer in American Literature to 1900 at University College London. And yes, beaming in from London. Unfortunately, I was not able to participate in the cluster itself, but I'm very grateful to be in conversation with everyone here. I'm Okugo Imijulu. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Warwick, but I'm currently, until December of 2022, Richard von Weisecker Fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy here in Berlin, and I'm really delighted to be here. Well, thank you all for being here. We're spread across 12 hours, I think three or four different time zones. So I'm really grateful for everyone making the time. So what I wanted to start with is the origins of the pitch. So what brought these essays together? What, Yanbing, had you and Sarah wanting to generate the energy for this cluster? And why refusal? Why now? So I think Sarah and I, when we were thinking about the cluster, we knew that we were in the moment of what it seemed like and what it continues to seem like compounding global crises, political, economic, environmental. And part of responding to those crises or gathering a response to that seemed in part impossible. And a lot of what we thought about 
and what we conceived in thinking about putting together these essays was a response that amounted to a turning away or a really a refusal or a, a resistance against structures of domination that had put these crises into play in the first place. So I think that was the pr basic premise of the line of thinking that um, we were trying to pursue. And I think we thought about refusal also not as a particular kind of closure, as, as refusal is conventionally thought about perhaps, um, but as perhaps paradoxically an opening, a form of radical resistance, a form of possibility, a form of being and thinking and existing otherwise in the face of these crises of, of, of the imagination, if you will. To what Yanbing was talking about, about, you know, this sort of being in response to a moment of compounding glo global crises. We were also interested in thinking sort of locally because we had been having lots of conversations about the difficulty of producing scholarship under conditions of precarity, the attention and attentiveness that that is required by scholarship that is going to be engaged with literary texts or, you know, whatever subject that they're thinking about. And so we wanted to bring that thinking into the cluster too. We have a pretty sort of even spread of scholars who are pretty established, and then scholars who are on more precarious or short-term contracts, uh, scholars who have left the sector due to just length of time and precarity and the impossibility of living on that. So it's also, I guess, an elegy to a kind of thinking that um, it's maybe an elegy to ideas that, that won't always get picked up because the people who are, are putting them out there are no longer able to produce that research. The essays that we ended up getting for for this cluster are really sort of intellectually rigorous. By Yan Bing and I were also like profoundly, profoundly moved by all of them. I think, um, and and really affected by, and and I think this is something we sort of address quite briefly in the introduction. But I I did want to highlight it that really affected by the way that. These are scholars who are, I suppose, refusing the terms of academic debate that ask us, you know, to become sort of intellectual robots, um, where, where life and our bodies and our feelings are not considered, you know, I guess, legitimate. Uh, subjects for exploration in some ways. And there's something about these essays that it evinces a kind of almost creative critical practice that, that transcends that boundary between the, the brain and the body or bridges the gap or leaks across it, you know, to use, to use a, a metaphor that you were using in relation to Snigda's work too, that the personal histories of these scholars are integral to their understanding of the world and the text that they're thinking about. And there's a direct acknowledgement of that in these essays. And I, I, I just really love that. <laughs> I'm really struck by that idea of refusal as creative or as opening. I don't want to say positive just because of the valences of that term. Yet it is creative. It is thinking about, as Akugo's essay puts it, misfeeling or ambivalence as actually generative forms of inhabiting the world. So is that something that you saw in a lot of the essays that were contributed to this cluster? Is that something you were looking forward to and were surprised by seeing the connections? Or did it just seem natural uh, with the people you had gathered? Yeah, I seemed like it seemed like a lot of the essays really took up the call for papers in its basic premise to think of refusal as a point of departure for something else. And a lot of the essays also spoke to each other in, in that sense, which is to say that they, they pursued refusal or they examined refusal, they explored refusal 
as a possibility for a radical resistance, I suppose. Um, and, you know, across these essays, whether it's an aesthetic form of refusal, whether it's a political form of refusal, whether it's, you know, other, other forms of refusal, possibly, these essays really speak to each other in their, in their thinking about refusal along these lines. One of the things that you've just said, thinking about refusal as resistance, to me at least, I was incredibly drawn to this because I am a literary critic who insists on resistance at a val- as a valid category or as a valid heuristic for reading texts. It seems like resistance is on the way out in literary criticism. People say that's such a boring way of reading texts. Resistance, is that really the only thing we have possible? Or is this truly radical or is this truly political? And I do think that there's a strong value in maintaining resistance as a critical or category or as a heuristic for analysis. Do you see that as well? Or do you think that refusal is actually slightly different than resistance? Are they synonymous? Or is it just, are they actually different gestures? I mean, I think it's a pity to me if, if resistance seems like it's on the way out. And I'm glad that, you know, there is a centering of, of radical resistance in these essays that, that are collected, whether it is a resistance to a dominant structure of being, for example, whether it's a resistance against intelligibility, perhaps whether it's a resistance against common forms of, of being and knowing. I don't know if it's, if it's synonymous with refusal necessarily. Um, but I definitely think that refusal as, as in the form that we are, as Sarah and I were thinking about it, definitely forms the premise to a kind or a form of resistance, which I think is particularly important to pursue at this, at this point in time. So I'm not a fancy literary scholar like like the rest of my colleagues here. So hopefully you will allow this sad little social scientist to kind of get in on the action. Um, and so first of all, I'm like... Um, horrified to hear that something like resistance could be going out of fashion or the idea that it would even be talked about in these terms of um, of fashion. So that's in itself, I find deeply problematic. But over here in politics and sociology, where the two disciplines in which I work, I've really been influenced by the work of the Mohawk anthropologist, uh, Audra Simpson, who talks a lot about uh, this concept of, of refusal. And it's been um, incredibly uh, influential to my thinking. And she makes a very clear distinction by saying that uh, refusal is actually very different from resistance. She talks about this idea of resistance as part of um the politics as usual, that when, in her case, the Mohawk nation is resisting, they're resisting settler colonialism in so-called Canada, but that also frames them in a particular dynamic of being marginalized, excluded, and subjected by the processes of of the particular form of of Canadian colonialism. And so what she says is refusal is a departure. It's a departure from these kinds of interactions. It's a refusal of being subjected by colonialism. It's a refusal, what she talks about, a refusal to enter into um, the project of whiteness. It's a refusal of all of these different kinds of dynamics. And so she's very clear about saying, if we take seriously this idea of refusal, then that opens up all kinds of possibilities in terms of, talks about refusal in terms of it historicizes um, collective action because what it does it makes you it it makes um, it forces us to remember dispossession but then and and then that in turn uh, gives meaning to the process of land back and um, reclaiming oneself and reclaiming um, collective sovereignty so refusal operates in these really interesting ways uh, that I hope literary scholars will not um, well first of all maybe will not um, confuse refusal and resistance, but resistance is this opportunity to think more broadly about what subjected groups, um, how they imagine otherwise in terms of their politics. Restating what Akugo said in relation to Audra Simpson's work in particular, which is that there is maybe a useful distinction to be made between resistance and refusal, which is that resistance still engages with the terms of you know, let's say 
white supremacy, right? Like it accedes to that logic in some way, while refusal turns away from that. And I think there in that space of turning away is the space of possibility because it's a new beginning that opens out somewhere else. Um, and that doesn't get bogged down in, you know, colonial logics in the same way, I guess. I'm so thankful to Akugo to bring, bring up Audra Simpson's ethnographic refusal that for my work as a literary studies scholar, like I'm so interested in the way the different fields of critical race and ethnic studies and the way that they're also seen as distinct is also something that's very obviously contested, have various traditions of thinking about both resistance and refusal. And I think in general, we could think of them as overlapping categories under auspices of what we could call disobedience, dissatisfaction, dissent, disaffection to varying degrees, and the sort of problem, as Simpson raises, of a politics of recognition about when do gestures rise to, to the level of coherence as political and, I guess, in, in, indeed as coherent in general. And so, like in my work, when I'm thinking about affect and I think about unfeeling, I'm not just thinking about a refusal to field and a withholding, but also like the forms of legibility about effective expression or inexpression at the same time. And for me, that's also why I find affect as a category really interesting precisely because of the slipperiness of affect versus feeling versus emotion, which is usually the complaint I get when I end up teaching about this to students. You're like, oh, but it's so difficult to define. It's actually the slipperiness is what makes it interesting. And for me, also what makes it interesting is precisely the way it complicates a presumed spectrum from like the agentic and volitional to the unconscious. Yeah, thinking about refusal and resistance, not necessarily encounter to each other, but perhaps orthogonally is also perhaps very useful as well. And so again, I'm really sorry about not being able to contribute to the cluster itself, but perhaps that was in a way my my own professional self and my own my own body at this moment. I think it's safe to say to share with people that I'm trying to seek a long COVID diagnosis, and that in a way is not just how my body is keeping the score, but my body is also trying to register a type of no that that on a cognitive level, I am also trying to compute into a form of refusal and seeing then how, to what extent do institutional forms register when your body says no, and can you still get sick leave in the most basic way? Um, so that's what I'm navigating right now. Yeah, and that reminds me too of the way that Jan Bing and Sarah begin the cluster with their introduction. They turn to Harney and Moten and the undercommons, and in fact, rethinking what the commons means. Can the commons be constituted by refusal? This is not a way we think about commons. Yet, is it the way we have to actually start thinking about it? it can we not see it as a sort of perpetually renewing thing, materially speaking, but something that, well, we all need access to? And that it does require refusal and remaking or unmaking or unfeeling or misfeeling, or as uh, Singha Koraila uh, puts it, as seepage, various forms of theorizing or naming this difference. So yeah, you all began with the undercommons or with even thinking about the various ways that Saidiya Hartman is unthinking subjection and subjectivity. So what drew you to the sort of orienting or as right, Sarah Ahmed would put it, orientating ourselves in this way, sort of as an opening gesture. I really love that Moten and Harney quote that uh, from the undercommons that we end the introduction on, um, which is, I believe in the world and I want to be in it. I want to be in it all the way to the end of it because I believe in another world in the world and I want to be in that. Um, so in that you know, kind of figuration, you see that refusal contains within the possibility of the no is a possibility of the yes, which is sort of what Anne Boyer says in her in her essay, no. Um, no is the precondition for a yes, because, because it's a not this, right? Um, that can create the possibility of a that, a different world. Yeah, I think a lot of um, what we were thinking about also 
um, was based on this notion of dislocation or really a rethinking even of, you know, the foundations or the assumptions of knowledge in which we stand. And I think this, this really, um, resonates with what Akugo and, and Zain just, um, said about how, um, even if we consider, you know, refusal, uh, it has to, it has to take a form that does not conform or is not coerced by structures of knowing and knowledge making that have made it look as such in the first place. And I think that is, uh, in part the basis of, of, you know, what the uncommons constitutes in that it is a displacement of, of what is commonly perceived as, as, as the commons, you know, as a space that is valorized as, as a space of sharing. Um, but it, it really, um, turns, I suppose, to, to questions of fugitivity, uh, you know, questions of being able to depart from, from, uh, these, you know, basic, uh, foundations or, or basic forms of, of knowing and being. It's interesting. Uh, I I was thinking about this idea of uh, of gestures, uh, and although I don't know if I explore that so closely in my article, I've been trying to think about this idea of misfeeling, which I take from Arlie Hochschild. And although I think she um, is part of a, a lineage in American sociology of really thinking about uh, white feelings, I think there is this concept um, embedded in her work of misfeeling of um, resistance and refusal in terms of not of, of wanting to feel against the grain to you know to violate the feeling rules of a given social situation in order to create spaces for more authentic ways of being and relating to each other which and you know maybe you could argue then that that's a way of uh, developing a kind of undercommons uh, that um, Houghton and Marnie discuss that in this way of kind of a feeling against something, a refusal to feel in these prescribed ways, then there's a way of kind of shrugging off the dynamics of capitalist overconsumption. There's a way of shrugging off the gender binary. There are ways of, you know, shrugging off particular forms of, you know, subjection through kind of white supremacist practices. Um, and that's something that I've been uh, really interested in examining in relation to how women of color across Europe uh, organize and mobilize. Uh, so I think there's something really interesting and important here. And as uh, Jean says, I personally do not, I, I'm not an affect person because I'm not sure I, I'm, I'm, this is a concept that I'm, I'm very skeptical of, but, and so I kind of stay floating in the ideas of feelings and emotions as ways, as ways of getting to how women of color are thinking through their emotions, thinking through their politics as it is, as they are manifested through their, through their bodies, uh, through their kind of emotional practices. I am drawn to the, those categories of thinking about feeling while wary of affect studies and the precisely the way that Aquago articulated, because feeling in general, I think, opens up a range of registers, both affective and political registers for engagement, especially for those who have been like structurally denied access to like the arenas of what's considered the coherently political, the co coherently literary, the coherent, just coherence in general. And for me, that was why I turned to unfeeling as both a way of like acknowledging what I saw as like the usefulness of the field of affect studies and history of emotion, which I feel are not entirely the same thing, but also my, my frustrations with how its universality is writ large on an assumption of white feeling. In my work, I do briefly turn to Hoschild because I think it is useful that she lays bare like emotional labor as a term. And it's so interesting that in this current moment in a grassroots level, her term, even though coined in the 70s, has now made it into mainstream conversations, which I think shows how it really speaks and indexes a very visceral grassroots felt sense of the way that labor isn't simply like formal labor. But I guess I didn't for me latch on to misfeeling precisely because my general feeling of dissatisfaction with what the discourses on affect and emotion were able to do, but also unable to do, and what was able to register and not register in terms of who even is considered an affect theorist versus 
who, you know, when race is thrown into the picture, it's usually seen as like, oh, it's this like sort of way of like painting in the universal or like this sort of niche example. And so in the way that I've been thinking about it, and I really draw on the work of Sylvia Winter and Denise Ferrer de Silva about the whole, um, about un as this whole question of legibility against uh, the false, a certain false universality. Sorry, I also find it slightly difficult to keep the keep track of my own thoughts thanks to brain fog. Um, so perhaps it's interesting on a meta level to then also think about the very problem of coherence because my own body and my own brain synonymously are also not letting me do do things. <laughs> I was really interested by what Zine was saying about um, difficulty or literary difficulty in a way, kind of creating space for um, texts or voices that might not have had access to the co what's known as like the coherently literary, right? Um, and and I think I think experimental is sort of an interesting designation for a number of reasons. It's sort of vague enough, and it usually is just ascribed to texts that you know don't conform in some ways to expected literary conventions or established literary conventions. Um, but this sort of, it makes me think of like the problem of, or like the discovery of, you know, postmodernism and, and the sense in which, you know, the world and texts are no longer, there's no, there's no center anymore. And a lot of, you know, um, feminist critiques uh for instance pointed up that this is this has been an experience that has been you know common to people who were not white men for a long time so the, i suppose the discovery of that is is quite ironic um and so i guess you know i don't want to press too hard on on the idea of experimental as being somehow like deviant or something but but it, it is a kind of refusal to give in to the hegemony of form, right? So Snigda's piece, for instance, breaks open the idea of the essay. It makes us rethink what what the shape of an argument is or what the shape of an argument looks like, because poetry is not an argument and like a novel is not an argument. Creative writing is not an argument in the way um, that we might think. Like it's not really sort of directly didactic in that respect or the logic isn't exegetical. Um, but, but there is something really powerful and urgent about a piece like this, it, you know, even though the argument is kind of inside. Yeah, that actually strikes me. So I wanted to bring in some of the other contributors too, who are not here, but Trisha Malone's essay in particular, I think speaks to Zion, what you're saying now, she writes about breath and remembering her father in actually a really beautiful way. It, it's an essay that proceeds by interruption and these interruptions are breaths and a sort of way of thinking about her own father's refusal of certain norms of masculinity, what it means to be to be colonized, especially in the context of Northern Ireland, and what it, what it means to participate or not participate in these various forms. So I'm actually struck by even just the way you ended, Zine, the way that that is actually connecting to one of the other essays here. What does it mean that sometimes your body just can't or doesn't, or what does it mean to inhabit a body or a form that is inscribed in certain ways or is conscripted quite literally in certain ways to refuse that or to think otherwise or inhabit otherwise. She's thinking it through the Irish language and various things that even the Irish language does to include breath or refusal, especially in relation to English as a colonial language. My favorite part of this essay, I, I, I love this essay too, and the way that it deals with breath, which is of course, you know, such a, such a pertinent topic at this moment as well for various reasons. But I, I, what I love most about this essay is, is, is the response to, um, you know, bodily trauma or, or devastation. And, and the response for, for Trish was really love. And that, that, that conceiving of love or, or this configuration of, of love is, is something that is propulsive, right? So it's a refusal of that devastation. It's a refusal of 
of trauma, of, of through a response that is really propulsive, that brings us forward in, in some way. So it's, it's to me, a really powerful part of this essay was how not to concede to certain regimes of brutality that may coerce you or, or may destroy your very physical being. And, and, and that response can be possibility. It can, can be held open in, in, in the space of, of, of such, you know, damage and, and, and devastation. Yeah, I'm struck by that. It's also, I think, in Stigna Coirella's piece, thinking about Nepalese history and coloniality and resistance and refusal and what it means to move like water. I think that's actually something that's been brought into worldwide discourse as well, thinking about refusal and resistance politics. But for Stigna, thinking through forms of water as offering a metaphor of seepage, things that don't quite work with each other. And she's thinking in particular about treaty language that's tied to rivers. And rivers, especially in ecological time, do not make sense as boundaries. They shift, they change, they alter. What does it mean to even use something like a river, or a tide, or a basin, or a lake, as a demarcation when these are just going to change? So what does it mean to even attune ourselves to different forms of time that refuse colonial time, standard time, and even thinking about the way that Snigda's essay formed itself as a lyric essay, that's something that is quite different from argumentation as such. It is involving so many different forms of articulation that it just can't quite capture what an essay is. I think, um, I guess, part of what's really interesting about um, Snigda's essay as well was how, and going back to your use or, or her, her use too of, of this seepage, right? Something that cannot be contained within, um, it's really uncontainable within dominant or conventional forms of thinking, um, of, of aesthetic expression even. Um, what does a refusal, what does refusal look like when it is, it manifests in the form of expression? Right. I think that, um, Snigda's essay really captures this kind of aesthetic refusal of expression in, 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 in many ways. Yeah. Do you think that that's a little bit tied to unfeeling or misfeeling? I, I'm bringing that up just because I'm struck by how they're not the same term, yet they're using these prefixes in relation to feeling in really fascinating ways. I suppose for me that it comes to the, the way that refusal is not always seen as generative and there's something that is like rhetorically sort of very liberating about embracing what seems to be utter negation but as actually in that same moment even though it may seem to be utter negation it isn't um, paradoxically generative and for me that sort of comes at what's usually seen as the tension or the uh, between white queer elitist forms of negation with like Lee Edelman's No Future versus queer of color critiques, generativeness with Jose Esteban Munoz and the horizons of queerness. But for me, I think are not so different conversations after all. And I guess, yeah, that's why the orthogonal might be particularly interesting. Or I think another for word that for me has had increasing traction for me is like apposition as opposed to opposition. But at the same time, the, the un and and saying like, well, maybe there doesn't have to be anything or there's no need to have to perform that there is any legibility of feeling persistently because I think that affect studies so much insists on it being everywhere and being so unavoidable and it being like just the stickiness of everything. And it's like, well, what what about the desi a desire to extricate oneself, to turn away, to remove, even if it is a type of fantasy and to sort of stay with the possibility of what can seen, be seen as the counter to intuitive and counteractive. I think as a provocation is always useful and again is useful but at the same time i'm also wary of precisely because the way it's not useful i think is useful in what because it doesn't fall into how we usually think about the instrumentalization of how any of these gestures are supposed to build up to something like into what's to what extent does registering refusal at micro levels it doesn't as is legitimate without having to build up towards a macro level gesture, right? So much of the work that we're talking about is precisely about a sensitivity to how this operates in different, in different registers that can be different ways of indexing problems on different scales without also having to necessarily marshal them towards a project 
of legibility. Zion, I love that because it's actually offering, there are gestures that don't do social reproduction in the ways that we need it or want it. What does it mean to actually index social forms against social reproduction? To just literally say, well, okay, here's a way we're imagining the self or participation or non-participation. And I also love what you said about apposite versus opposite. It's what actually, funnily enough, one of the editing gestures that I made in several of the pieces as the contemporaries editor, I said, well, maybe let's use apposite instead of opposite. Because I think that there's something happening that's not quite within the register of the dialectic, but that is still doing something in relation to. So it's sort of uh, thinking about horizontality and seepage and relation rather than this sort of transcendental dialectic. It's something that's, I think, really fascinating and really interesting in terms of even what refusal does that isn't, yeah, isn't doing social reproduction in the ways that capitalism might need us to or want us to. Well, can I just say, just listening in to <laughs> these words, I was like, oh, we don't use these terms in the social science. So I'm learning so much about uh, opposite and all of these other things. So like, I need to get, go find my thesaurus uh, and look all this up. But um, I wanted to go back to... Um, this idea of the assumption that refusal is a kind of negation. And I guess for me, it's one of those things where I don't know if I necessarily needed to reclaim or rethink or uh, uh, explain refusal in a way, because I, I, I keep thinking about in our conversation, I, I keep thinking about Bell Hooks and her book, Talking Back, Talking Black. And I and I and I feel like refusal is such an important part of. Um, well, I'll speak only for the kind of Black American tradition that it's such an important part of what politics looks like, right? And it doesn't. And the starting point uh, is not negation. The starting point is, you know, going back to our concept or our earlier conversation about resistance, the term, you know, the idea of talking back to authority and refusing the ways in which one is subjected. I guess I, you know, this is kind of part of part and parcel of like how I was raised. You know, I kind of saw my mother and grandmother and everyone in my family doing this because that was just kind of the everyday, but then also kind of the institutionalized politics. If, you know, if you want to claim your humanity as a black person in the United States, then part of what you have to do, it's demanded of you, is that you must refuse in all of these ways, big and small, that you are um, that you are dehumanized or actually rendered non-human. And so for me, it's um, refusal is such an important aspect of, I think, any kind of uh, Black feminist politics, because by the very nature of taking seriously an idea of blackness within feminism, of disrupting the idea of who the key subject is or subjects are and might be within feminism, but also within the black politics. I don't think you can do that without a concept of refusal, which doesn't even come from the starting point of negation. It's actually a, a claiming of, of self-sovereignty. So I've been thinking about, you know, um, through these conversations, uh, the idea of what politics really looks like. Um, and I think what struck me with, um, what Zain said earlier and, you know, Akugo, your, your piece in this, in this cluster as well is how do you stay with a moment or a scene of irresolution, right? Of, of ambivalence as, as, you know, Akugo, you, you use in your essay and Zain, you use in your work. How do you stay with that? How do you be in that moment without moving into a state of conclusion or a prescriptive kind of politics that has always been demanded of uh, movements of resistance as we know of. And what happens when we think of resistance in this difficult space, right, of irresolution, of uncertainty, right? How do we use this space as a departure for other possibilities of being. That brings to mind uh, Claire Galandre-Drolet's essay on Don Mi Choi and the various ways that uh, Choi is unthinking translation or refusing translation as a form of resolution or of certainty or of knowledge. Yeah, I wanted to just uh, talk about that idea of ambivalence because I think that ambivalence is so interesting and important because I think we have to confront it in a way that we haven't done in the past because we are in this long moment 
of defeat of left politics. And yes, of course, there are very interesting things happening all over the globe in terms of kind of the uprisings in Iran, you know, Lula being elected in Brazil, various interesting things taking place across uh, the European continent. But Without a doubt, we're in a moment of um, a rolling back of the welfare state. Uh, particularly, I'm speaking from a European context. You have far-right parties that uh, have been elected in, in Italy. Um, a far-right party um, is uh, in a confidence and supply situation in Sweden. Uh, so you see this kind of moment of, uh, maybe it's too strong to say a repudiation of some of the sacred cows of the left, but certainly a turning away. And I think that if we're serious about an idea of a conjuncture and thinking about how a particular moment generates a particular kind of politics, then uh, Yang Bin, as you say, then I think then we have to kind of confront this idea of ambivalence because when I'm speaking to um, women of color activists on the ground and they kind of you know, take a look at uh, when they look around and see the catastrophe that surrounds them. They are um, absolutely disheartened, disillusioned, afraid, you know, uh, scared for the future um, and worried about um, everyday violence on the streets, which many of my activists uh, that I spoke with um, experience, but also institutionally, institutionalized kinds of violences, which are actually state policies that have a lot of public support. And so given that, that level of insecurity and precarity, that even within that context, we still see activists insisting on moments of pleasure and and joy. And it's not to ignore the, the violences, uh, but it's and it's also somehow not to defray them in a way, but saying that there's, you know, even in even in the midst of all this ugliness, there's still these there's still these small windows of opportunities for enjoyment and they have to be grabbed with both hands. And it has to happen within community because this is the only um, shelter from the storm. And so I'm I'm interested in ambivalence because I feel like these feelings of of, of, of insecurity, of of, of fear of disillusionment uh, must always are always somehow circumscribed or in understood in relation to this pursuit of fleeting moments, these ephemeral moments of, of solidarity, of joy and pleasure. In the essay, I talk about how it's the irresolvability of the issues that confront us is what makes it so interesting. And so, um, and how people are in, you know, living this ambivalence, even if they're not using these terms and thinking about it in this way, are living this kind of ambivalence every day. And I'm, and I guess for me, I'm, I'm really interested in understanding what that does to us over time. What we see are people kind of moving into these temporary states of respite, despite the broader politics taking place. And I just wonder about the fragility of these experiences that I wonder, is it sustainable over time? Can you reproduce it across activist generations? What happens when someone is burnt out and horrified and just so sad that they leave? How do you maintain this? So I'm very interested in this, um, the fragility of the emotional moment for many of these activists when they're dealing with very real material harms and violences. That brings to mind the late, great Mike Davis. So we had a sort of very quick cluster in his honor when we knew that he was very sick. And thinking about the ways that he is somebody who's thinking about defeat across generations, but also, well, people keep working towards this. People keep actually finding joy. And it's really incredible seeing somebody like Davis, who I think, like the activist you're talking about, Akugo, who's Yes, thinking about the intellectual part of this, but also as an, a union organizer and activist, what does it actually mean to keep this up? Finding these moments of joy, finding the joy and solidarity, but also making space for disappointment and anger even. And what it means so often that, and I think in particular in your piece, Akugo, thinking about people who are often seen as, well, resistant and bitter and rude. Well, yeah, why aren't they being, why shouldn't they be rude or resistant or misfeeling or not doing the right thing, especially when life is really fucking disappointing in a multitude of ways? Uh, so it's just, I think, making this space is really important. And in fact, seeing it as part of a, almost a coalition of affect or a coalition of feelings that just, well, we can all feel the same way, right? And that's as 
okay. Even just on the very baseline level, it's okay that within a coalition, we don't all feel the same way. Yeah, I guess this perhaps speaks back to your earlier question about uh, the uncommons. But for me, I think an interesting formulation has been to put Raymond Williams' structures of feeling into conversation with Audre Lorde's often quoted but very seldom properly read, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, and thinking about what if the master's house is one such structure of feeling. And I'm really struck that in the essay, a point that she makes is about the, the sort of turning away and being shut out of the master's house, and that she says that, she says, but those of us who are black, who are lesbian, who are older, who are poor, um, and she's like names all these different forms of of social exclusion. She says, like, we'll find ourselves cast out of the, basically cast out of the social and the place of the antisocial and yet can come together. And I think that's why the thinking of the oppositional and the orthogonal to me is, is interesting precisely because it doesn't require a certain level of like very clear, like this is bi big R resistance. It could also be the ways that like people can actually come together in a very different type of solidarity, which isn't relied, isn't reliant on the sort of like fascist homogeneity that is is so normative. Just to go back to this idea of like, I think kind of a, like a very unfashionable idea of thinking about uh, the political education of activists, because we think a lot about strategies and tactics and kind of knowing your enemy and all of these kinds of things. But I, but because there is actually very little intergenerational conversations is uh, that activists are actually in this very weird groundhog day that like every generation of activists have to learn and be disappointed in the same ways. And then they leave various networks and groups and those gr groups have to be built again. And so part of the political education of activists, I'm hoping will start to, you know, take uh, these kinds of difficult feelings seriously of not just, you know, how to learn from defeat, but then also to know that one is going to feel lots of contradictory ways about the nature of the threat that faces you, but then also the possibility of success and the difficulties of horizontal organization and all of these kinds of things, that would just be um, an ideal situation that we can have, you know, these honest conversations about the realities of resistance and refusal, that it's not a linear process and your feelings more often than not be, um, will be a mystery to you as well as to others. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm actually struck here by even uh, something that you just said reminded me of Robin D.G. Kelly's great book, Hammer and Ho, in which he's talking about the broader U.S. Communist Party's, the CPUSA's, confusion as to why the Alabama Communist Party, well, first of all, it was largely black, which was very unlike a lot of the other parties in different states, but also that they read Marx and the Bible together. And we're very insistent on this and just like, it makes total sense to us. Uh, so even just thinking about the fact that it was liberation theology before the fact, uh, and just the confusion that the main people like Earl Browder and others experienced at these, you know, Bible thumping communists uh, who just, it made perfect sense and how it's not something that has to be relearned over and over again, but maybe our expectations even need to be unlearned, uh, especially when it comes to certain forms of activism. So, what I wanted to do now is just turn to a couple of the other essays, because thinking about multi-generational thinking, uh, you know, we had Bonnie Honig, which was a huge honor, I think, to host in this cluster. And she's sort of rethinking or revising or even re-articulating some of her long-standing thoughts about refusal, what it means to build together, various feminist icons in Greek, from Greek tragedy to the present, even using Wittgenstein as a sort of precursor in certain really fascinating, resistant, maybe perverse ways, which I really enjoyed, honestly. But what does it mean to actually build by refusing to participate? And this is something that Jereen Tan's essay also does it, through the Koreeda's film Our Little Sister. These sisters take in their half-sister and everyone tells them, no, this is humiliating. Why would you possibly do this? And they just do. They don't care. Love is the point. And so thinking about how Jareen's essay is building on Bonnie's essay uh, and Bonnie's larger body of work as a form, refusal as a form of care even, as a way of taking care of people who you really do love. 
even though the world at large sees this as perverse or humiliating or awful or strange, why not keep loving? Uh, so I thought that that was a really great connection, thinking about these various forms of feeling, of affect, that just, well, sometimes they're micro-communities, sometimes they're larger coalitions. And this is, I think, something that's really important. I mean, Jareen calls it yellow feminism, by which she means cowardliness, too, right? What does it mean that these are women who just don't want to do this, who are afraid of certain things, but are in very small ways building community and building love? Even though these women, these sisters, might be seen as cowardly for refusing to participate in social norms, they're entirely courageous. They're entirely brave. Bonnie's uh, recent book, A Feminist Theory of Refusal, was of course one of the key texts that inspired the cluster. So I am really struck by Bonnie's refusal to depart so easily from this world. I think a lot of Bonnie's work involves actually a return, whether it is to classical figures, you know, of Greek thought, a, 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 ref, a refusal to, to enact a, a, a flight that is too easy from, from the foundations of this world. So I think Bonnie's work to me really is a gesture of staying with what currently makes up this world. And, and she does, I think, in her book, emphasize that this form of staying with or, or being in this world is perhaps maybe to use the word appositional again, to forms of black, uh, black studies, uh, thinking in black studies or indigenous thinking of more radical forms of refusal, I guess, more radical forms of departure from, from a world that has been so inhospitable for, for such forms of life. Um, but I think Bonnie's work is, is useful to think alongside these uh, modes of refusal in its refusal to move so easily on, I suppose. And, and that kind of refusal as an act, um, as Francisco, you said, you know, an act of care for this world, a, a refusal to allow this world to go on as, as, as it is, insofar as that in itself also constitutes a, a, a transformative gesture of, of possibility. I love the way you've put it, Yaming, the sort of refusal to let go, because that actually reminds me of the cross-disciplinary nature of this cluster. Um, as Akugo has pointed out multiple times, there's a sort of horror in knowing that literary critics are doing certain things that sociologists take very seriously. Or even think about Bonnie as a political theorist. Well, that means she's thinking about the sort of millennia-long tradition of how the West even constructs itself. right? It's uh, A lot of people have taken it as a given, but as Bonnie's work points out, no, it's not. Uh, the West is not a given. And so even thinking about the various philosophical heritages, well, what does it mean to read the Greeks as Greek, not as European? As, like, there are a whole, so she's participating in this way with a longer conversation that's been happening for a very long time about, well, refusing even what it means to constitute oneself as a Western European subject. Well, what does it mean to sort of uh, dishevel the origins of this, as the literary critic James Ford would put it, to dishevel the origins of the human uh, in the first place? So, yeah, I, I love the cross-disciplinary nature of this uh, because we have sociology, political science, film criticism, translation studies, or non-translation studies, perhaps, uh, creative writing, the lyric. And so I just loved uh, editing this essay from a sort of global level as one of the contemporaries editors because it was really throwing things in a conversation that maybe we shouldn't avoid so much, or maybe it's not throwback, I will say, but uh, perhaps using the language of Raymond Williams, thinking about residual forms of thinking. Yeah, so I think maybe this question's directed to Akugo mostly, since you're the uh, outlier here disciplinarily. But yeah, the, the cross-disciplinary nature of this cluster, I thought was really fabulous. No, I think that's right. And I really like this idea of taking aim at a lot of our 
um, a lot of the assumptions. So when Bonnie's writing over in uh, political theory, I mean, she's that is a, a lonely but an important work that she's doing to actually read the Greeks as Greek, because an idea of Europe, this a European concept did not exist, right? Even an idea of Greekness did not exist, right? One, you know, folks were Athenian or they were in some other city state, right? And then even those Athenians, they're talking about male citizens. And so once we start understanding how so many of our essential concepts are really only applying to the elite few, then that creates all kinds of possibilities for us to think completely differently. And also so that people aren't bending the knee at these concepts that were never developed for the vast majority of humanity. And so I think this kind of work is so interesting and important and really links to obviously the work of Sylvia Winter and Sadia Hartman, uh, which I think is so important in terms of really thinking about uh, Europe as a deeply kind of provincial, but this why well, I always talk about this idea of um, exclusive universalism, right? That, uh, <laughs> which I think is a very important idea. And then once you kind of accept that fact, then we can start having more interesting conversations. Yan Bing, what was it like uh, from your perspective, yours and Sarah's, putting together this, uh, precisely what Akuga was talking about, this, these long conversations that seem to perpetually happen, but yet not happen often enough? I mean, I think that one of, uh, something that we acknowledged among ourselves was that, you know, each of these essays is putting together a um, gesture of refusal that is never an abrogation of refusal in, in another's or in, is never an abrogation of the politics that, that another essay is, is, is dealing with. So I think a lot of that, that interdisciplinary conversation really comes about in the surprising resonances between these different essays that clearly they come from, um, you know, various, uh, uh fields such as, you know, political science, of course, sociology, um, you know, cultural studies, literary criticism, but surprisingly, or perhaps not so surprisingly, there were very distinct resonances between them in the way that they were eventually talking about refusal. And so it, it, it became quite effortless in some way to trace a trajectory of refusal through them. They were, they were enacting a conversation amongst themselves, even though each, each contributor perhaps came from a different background. So that was really wonderful to see. And we've only got a couple more minutes. So what I wanted to do is now turn to, uh, Zion, since you weren't able to participate in the cluster, but some uh, if you wanted to quickly plug some of your the work that you think is actually very much in relation to this, but also Akugo, your one of your books just came out, uh, Fugitive Feminism. So I wanted to invite the two of you to speak a little bit more about current projects. Uh, and Yambi, you can add something as well, of course. You know, I was just thinking about the sort of present, like what is happening right now. I believe that Akugo, even you're uh, on tour right now for your book or giving talks about your book. So Zainan and Kuga, this is a sort of invitation to plug your work. Uh, great. Happy to do so. So, yes, thank you so much for talking about Fugitive Feminism. That was uh, just published at the end of October. And I was just in London uh, for the book launch at the London Review of Books. I have a second book launch in Berlin, which is going to be on the 26th of November at Hopscotch Reading Room, which is this great, fantastic reading room that specializes in uh, post-colonial literature. Uh, so Fugitive Feminism is all about uh, trying to, it's a thought experiment that starts with Sylvia Winter's essay, No Humans Involved. And where she sets out, one of her earliest essays where she sets out, what does it mean for Black people to be outside of the category of human, of how that was manufactured by by both, in, the, in this case, the Los Angeles police and power structure, but really through European philosophy. And so it's very similar to the conversation we were just having. And of course, in Sylvia Winter's work, she goes on to talk about how we can, you know, uh, we can reclaim an idea of the human, but we first must divest it of a murderous idea of whiteness. But I am interested in starting and in, in, in staying with this point of saying, if this category of human was never developed for the vast majority of people, but for Black people in particular, and my particular interest is Black women, I'm interested in what does that do if we take seriously this idea that Black people are not human, but are, are another kind of being? 
What does that then do to our Black feminist politics of liberation? And so this book is really a thought experiment to say, how can we think differently about the politics of care, think about uh, the politics of community and solidarity without the, the human as a referent and an anchor? Uh, so what does it mean to be out of space and time? And can we still hold on to and honor our Black feminist foremothers who were struggling for liberation both in theory and in practice? My book, Disaffected, the Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America, came out pr pretty much a year ago. So it's also a Scorpio, just like um, Akugo's book, um, Scorpio Season. Huh? And I think it, it's sort of funny that for perhaps people who are in astrology in the room, like, I feel like it's, it's a Scorpio book written by a Libra, if that makes sense to certain people. Oh my goodness, Akugo too! Like that, likewise, I think that, as I was saying, like my attraction to like the polemic and the provocation is also to not necessarily see it as necessarily oppositional, even though not, even though I want to give space for the possibility of negation and the counterintuitive. But I guess like my Libra justice, aesthetics and balance is also behind what seems like perhaps the dramatic gesture to the unfeeling. But I think that Mike, and I think it's so, wonderful and interesting to know there's all these congresses with uh, Akugo's book and what I'm what I was interested in exploring is again sort of having this way of intervening in terms of thinking about affect studies and the history of motion and what doesn't rise to the level of being perceived as such and like pointing out that being seen as sympathetic is a two-way bind. You have to be sympathetic to, be, to power in order to be seen as sympathetic. And if you're not, you're then unsympathetic to power and therefore seen as unsympathetic. And my point was to look to the 19th century, precisely at the moment where this sort of idea of right feeling leading to the right type of politics gets reified with Uncle Tom's Cabin, with all the ways that we understand it being um, problematically anti-Black, although doing the work of abolition. And the way that even at the time, people, Black people, were talking about emancipation in ways that didn't have to do with acceding to white abolitionist views and doing it without white feelings, that then looking at, say, the Chinese exclusion era and the way that Chinese people seen as alien weren't also necessarily trying to fit themselves into the idea of just simply humanizing them and not being seen, seen as less alien. And I look at the ways that it's variously racialized and gendered, and I'm really thinking about also the category of racialized gender and how it disrupts white binary gender as well. As these, as the intersection of all these entangled genealogies of of different traditions of critical race and ethnic studies today, but also we can see a long history of it going back to the 19th century, if not before. And so for me, for instance, in, in my book, I end with thinking about oriental inscrutability as a particular queer racialized form with the work of the first um, Asian, one of the first Asian North American women writers who is um, mixed-race Chinese and disabled and unqueer. But in order to get to that point, I have to explore thinking about how these forms of, of resistance, uh, refusal, and unfeeling, say, operated in, for Black politics in terms of Indigenous and also Indigenous decolonization, and also the work of white feminism to sort of locate where Suisse and Far comes in at the turn of the century, but also where it, I myself find myself as myself a sort of like inscrutable orientalized subject. Um, and so I think it's been really exciting to see you know, Yanbing and Sarah Bernstein putting together this cluster and, and to have Akugo's book coming up because it's in this very real sense of us working across 12 different time zones, across so many different geographies, this sort of sense of a grassroots sense, each from our particular positionalities nuanced by our particular experiences in ways that are not essentializing, still find convergence. And I think that's like the work of solidarity. I love actually even the turn to Suisse and Far here because uh, having taught her, she's one of the more confounding people to teach to students, frankly. But one of the things I love is in her short story, The Inferior Woman, the main character is writing a book about the white woman and sitting outside listening and taking notes uh, in this sort of really wonderful reversal of the native informant and it's just a really fascinating text it's doing so much in terms of creativity she's a really confounding person to teach uh, for a lot of students they don't quite know what to make of her but i think that's a kind of great place to end is what do we do what does inscrutability offer rather than closure or anything else it's perhaps a way of thinking otherwise. I put in the mind, too, of uh, Michelle Huang's work, too, thinking about forms of refusal, or if this is the way that the human has been constituted, what's available to us otherwise? Or how do we see people actually refusing or working against 
these various inherited forms. As a, as a triple Gemini, I also appreciate the Scorpio Libra thing because I firmly believe you can be just two things at once at all times, whether it's the stars or whether it's my parents, who knows. So I wanted to sort of offer it back to Yunbing for concluding thoughts. I, I really appreciate how each, um, each of the essays in the cluster and each of the speakers today um, has really prompted us to think of refusal in, in, in its most capacious sense. So I think Sarah and I examined this briefly in, 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 in the introduction, it, where it seems to be that refusal, refusal dictates a certain kind of closure. It is instead, or, or how perhaps we should conceive of it is, is a kind of opening. And it is an opening that is, is, is difficult. It is an opening that is uncertain. It is an, an opening that, um, does not offer any kind of prescription or any, any possibility of resolution, perhaps at this point. But it really is a, way of thinking about the future, I suppose, perhaps to, to, to end the podcast this way as, um, something that is not a reproduction of the same, right? It, it's really something that departs from, um, the brutality of the present in order to create a more transformative, a more ethical possibility of, of, of living and, and, and being otherwise. That was Yan Bing Air, Sarah Bernstein, Akugo Emijalu, Zain Yao, and my contemporary's colleague Francisco Robles. You can find gestures of refusal at post45.org slash contemporaries now. That's where you can also find over 30 previous clusters, including our most recent release for Speed and Creed, a series of fantastic essays on the Fast and Furious franchise. And look out for a podcast episode on that soon too. You can also follow us on Twitter as long as it lasts at, at post45. If you're interested in pitching us an idea for a cluster, please email us at post45contemporaries at gmail.com. Further information on what we look for in a pitch can be found on our website, which again is post45.org slash contemporaries. Look out very soon for upcoming clusters on RuPaul's Drag Race, David Berman, and Minimalism in the 21st Century. There will of course be Odd 45 episodes to accompany those and indeed all subsequent clusters. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And if you'd like to leave us a positive rating and review, that helps other people find the show. And once again, please do sign up for our newsletter via the link at post45.org to ensure that you're never out of the loop when it comes to all matters post45. I've been your host, Michael Doherty, and you've been listening to Pod 45.